Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to just invite you to meet me in Revelation chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 17. Uh, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Mike Kazrowski. I'm the Associate Pastor of Ministries here at FAC. This morning, as John mentioned earlier, we are going to begin the second part of our Back to Basics series in which we'll study Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, we'll stick with just those two chapters. Um, this morning, we're going to be predominantly in verses 1 through 7, but I would like to start just by reading verses 17 through 20 of chapter 1 to kind of give you some context and an intro into the passage that we're going to study. Uh, If we were to take uh, more time to look at Revelation 1, we would find that John, who is one of the original apostles, has been exiled to an island called Patmos on account of his faith. And it's here that Jesus himself appears to John in an amazing vision. This is extremely significant because the last time that we see Jesus literally speaking to somebody is uh, several decades earlier to Paul on the road to Damascus. And so the book of Revelation is of sorts uh, Jesus' last known whereabouts. And we'll pick up in verse 17 where Jesus speaks to John himself. Let's take a look at it together. When I saw him... I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we come to your word uh, humbly, and we ask, Father, as we study the very words of Jesus, that your spirit would make known uh, what needs to be known, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would convict us in our hearts what we need to be convicted of, and that our eyes would be opened, Lord. And in your holy name I pray, amen. One of my least favorite things to do in the entire world is go to the doctor. You're sitting there in the waiting room for hours, and then they call you back, And they start poking you, and they start prodding you, and then they tell you everything that's wrong with you and what you need to do to fix it. And then, to add insult to injury, at some point during the visit, they make you step on the scale. And you find out that your scale is 10 pounds off, and you've just magically gained 10 pounds. It's a rather unpleasant experience for me as a whole, and so I have a choice to make. Right In my own personal health, I can either bite the bullet and get evaluated on a consistent basis, or in my own foolishness, I can just avoid getting evaluated at all. Right? If I can avoid the unpleasantry of going to the doctors by just not going, correct? However, you can see how faulty the thinking of the latter uh, can prove to be detrimental. If I were to avoid evaluation altogether, there may be some kind of disease that sprouts up undetected and can wreak havoc on my body. 
The, the disease might start off as simple and easy to eliminate, but as time goes on, and as it goes undetected, it may grow into something much more serious. In the same way, churches can carry diseases, spiritual diseases. Some may be simple to eradicate, while others are much more complicated. And there are others that, if left undetected and unaddressed, could lead to the demise and death of a church. As we come to Revelation 2 and 3, what we find is a spiritual evaluation, a checkup of seven different churches. And the doctor that's doing the checkup is none other than the great physician, Jesus Christ. Last week, we just finished up a series in Acts chapter 2, where we evaluated and examined that first Christian church that existed in about 33 AD. It was the, the beginning of the Christian church, and in many ways was the ideal church. This was the church that we should strive to be as a church here at FAC. Uh, Revelation was written in about 90 AD. And so what we're doing is we're going to take a look at the church 50 years later. At this point, sin has had an opportunity to have its way within the church, and Jesus is offering a checkup. In these seven letters that we'll look at over the course of the next several months, um, we'll find that Jesus is inspecting more specifically the spirit of these churches. In the passage that we read just moments ago, uh, we're told that Jesus is holding seven stars and walking among seven lampstands. And there's a symbolic meaning behind these that's important for our context. And it's, it's explained in verse 20 of chapter 1. We learn that the lampstands represent the churches and the stars represent the angel of those seven churches. Now what Jesus means by the angels of the churches may not mean what you think. The, the angels, as one commentator put, puts it, are the personification of their prevailing spirit. The personification of their prevailing spirit. Basically, the angels represent the overall spirit of the church. When you move into a new area or try to find a new church, whether you realize you're doing this or not, what you're trying to accomplish is figuring out what is the overall spirit of the church. Is it a loving church? Is it an active church? Is it a unified church? And unfortunately for us, it could take several years for us to truly understand the spirit of the church. And even then, we're going to have a skewed outlook. We're going to have a distorted picture of the overall spirit of the church because we bring our own baggage, we bring our own sin. However, for Jesus... The sinless Jesus, this is not the case. In verse 1 of chapter 2, which we'll read in a moment, we see that Jesus walks among the lampstands. We get this visual picture of Jesus being present in their midst and aware of their activities. And because Christ is the perfect judge, and because he is perfectly present, he is able to truly evaluate 
the spirit of the church. He can say with authority, I know your deeds, I know your manner of life, and this is what I see. This is your condition. And only Jesus is able to offer a good and wise and true spiritual evaluation. And as we turn to Revelation 2 and 3, it's fairly clear that the intended audience of this letter to these seven churches um, and the spiritual evaluation is not just these churches, but for all churches. Every single message that we're going to work through over the course of the next seven weeks to the seven churches includes the phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Essentially, Jesus is airing their dirty laundry and then inviting everyone to come and see. Not for the sake of embarrassment, but for the sake of correction. The intended purpose of these two chapters in Revelation is for a church like First Alliance to examine what they were doing right and what they were doing wrong and then uh, turn the evaluation in on ourselves and ask the question, are we as a local body of believers making the same mistakes that these churches are, are making. If Christ were to give us an x-ray on the spirit of FAC, what kind of muck would he find on our hearts as a body of believers? What would Jesus say to FAC if he gave us the same treatment? And so we're going to take the next seven weeks to study these seven churches as not to make the same mistakes. See, if the spirit of FAC reflects any of the symptoms parallel to the churches of Revelation, we must come aware and do what we can to fix it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so let's turn and look to that first church that Jesus addresses, being the church of Ephesus. Uh, Chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. For your own homework, you can read about the birth of the church in Ephesus 
at the end of Acts chapter 18 and the beginning of Acts 19. Uh, you, you'll read how Paul planted the church and spent several years instructing them to kind of get them off the ground, able to lead themselves. Now, Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, was one of the most prominent cities in the ancient world uh, as it sat at the intersection of three of the most important trade routes. The trade routes boosted the economy and commercial presence of Ephesus, and it resulted in population growth to about a quarter of a million people, which was massive in ancient times. And not only was it a city of commerce, it was also a city of cult worship, which was the practice of uh, worshiping Roman emperors. Now, the first Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, actually had two temples built in his honor in Ephesus. In Domitian, a later Roman emperor, emperor declared Ephesus the guardian of the imperial cult. Not only that, but Ephesus had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the temple of Artemis, who is the Greek goddess of fertility. I tell you these details, not to bore you, but that you may imagine the type of culture that this church was engulfed in. You can imagine the type of people that the church of Ephesus would come across. And because of this context the church would be exposed to a lot of different ideas uh, that would directly challenge the authoritative word of God, right? In their culture, they were very vulnerable to import, uh, different ideas that could pollute Christian ideals, and it would be very easy for false teachers to creep in unnoticed. This is helpful for us to know. As, uh, we are in a 21st century American context, I think, that we can relate. Th their culture is very similar and consistent with our postmodern Internet age context. And this is the backdrop that we need to have as we look to this letter in Ephesus. Uh, all of these letters, for the most part in Revelation, have a similar pattern that will help us walk through the, the passages, and I'll share these with you up front. Not all of them fit these four headers, but most of them do. Um, we see as we read that Jesus offers a praise. Uh, we also see that he offers a problem, and then a penalty of that problem, if it's not fixed, and then finally a promise. A praise, a problem, a penalty, a promise. Uh, we'll use these points as a roadmap as we walk through this letter to Ephesus. Uh, first, we see that Jesus offers praise to Ephesus. What does he praise them for? He praises them for their toil and their hard work and their perseverance. Uh, their, specifically, their patient endurance as they test those who call themselves apostles and found to be false. As I mentioned earlier, because Ephesus was at a crossroads for commerce, culture, and the imperial cult, they would have people pop up in the church who claimed to speak truth, but after being tested were found out to be frauds. This is extremely serious, and Jesus would call these people evil. These are flat-out evil people, and they're very dangerous people because they never appear to be a threat until they've already gained influence. They, they don't appear to be a threat until it's too late. They come in disguise, 
perhaps as a friend or a brother, as a teacher that can be trusted and reliable. And then little by little, they speak undetected lies. And then eventually, when the time is right, they will devour you before you know it. It reminds me of the uh, old fairy tale of Little Red Riding Hood, right? Little Red approaches the wolf disguised as her grandma. Grandmother, what big ears you have. All the better to hear you with, my dear. Grandmother, what big eyes you have. All the better to see you with, my dear. And grandmother, what big teeth you have. Well, all the better to eat you with, my dear. It's a little silly story, but I think it illustrates what's going on here, and it illustrates what Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 15. Take a look at that. The words are on the screen. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly, uh, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Once again, we live in a postmodern culture where absolute truth is constantly challenged. We are exposed to a heap of ideas and told that every single one is valid. It's called relativism. Anything goes mentality. It's an anything goes mentality that is poison to the absolute truth of the gospel. And there are people who rise up within churches who appear friendly and appear knowledgeable and appear trustworthy, but they are speaking lies. Now, this should not come as a surprise to the church in Ephesus, and perhaps they do such a good job of this because they were properly prepared for it. This is uh, Paul, Paul himself told them that this was going to happen. Take a look at Acts 20, verses 28 through 31. In this passage, Paul is talking to the elders of the church in Ephesus. He's specifically instructing them, and this is what he says. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. In this passage, Paul is telling the leaders of Ephesus that there will be fierce wolves that come in among you. And some of them are in your midst already. Some of them will rise up from within. What does he instruct them to do as a church? What can we do as a church? I think there's two things that we can do that Paul instructs the Ephesian overseers to do. The first is to pay very careful attention. To be alert. Are we aware enough about what is going on in the midst of FAC that we could spot a false teacher should they come across our path? Are you alert enough about Scripture that you're even able to test those who claim to speak truth? Or do you submit to the impulsive teaching from any old soundbite on the Internet that sounds so smooth? Be careful 
be alert. The other thing that I think we can do that Paul hints at is that we can grow a backbone. I believe that there are a lot of weak and wimpy believers out there who do not anchor themselves in Scripture and eventually fall victim to the bustling waves of relativism. In this passage, we get a picture of a shepherd guarding their flock from the ravenous, fierce wolves. If the shepherd truly cares for his flock, they're going to stand up and fight the wolf. In courage, he comes up against the wolf actively. The terrible shepherd is the one who cowers in the corner in fear as the wolf devours the flock. The terrible pastor or the terrible elder is the one who turns a blind eye to false teaching and lets it wreak havoc on the congregation because they're too scared to address it head on. The the primary responsibility of the pastor and the elder is the word of God. And one of the primary responsibilities of the pastor or the elder and the leadership here at FAC is to guard this pulpit, to guard the truth that has been entrusted to us, to guard the flock from the wolves. And in order to do that, we need to have a backbone. The church in Ephesus did, and they did it well, and Jesus praised them for it. However, there was an underlying problem that lurked in the background for the church in Ephesus. Jesus says this in verses 4 through the the beginning of 5. In verse 4, we are told that they abandoned the love that they had at first. They abandoned the love that they had at first. Perhaps in their quest for pure doctrine and, and sound teaching, one commentator states that they had created a climate of suspicion a climate of suspicion in which love within the believing community could no longer exist. They seemed to overcorrect. You know, in seeking to ensure that they would be on the lookout for mistaken Christians, they forgot how to love, and they forgot how to do this in love. They erred on the side of being cold-hearted towards others. Their first love is their love for each other. And it's probably grounded in the fact that they've lost their first love for for God, for, for God himself. What Jesus is saying is you have become so rigid and you have become so stiff and so black and white that you no longer love me and love others within the church like you once did. You have forsaken and abandoned the love that you once had because you are so caught up in what's right and what's wrong. It should terrify us that we can toil and work and persevere all for Jesus, for his name's sake, but not have a love for each other and not have a love for him. If you will, they have become legalists. Legalism is a dangerous system that elevates the duty and authority of man above the duty and authority of Jesus. It is the unbiblical practice of elevating any other standard above the work of Jesus Christ. It's to create a new law that is binding apart from the binding law that Jesus Christ 
fulfilled. And it has dramatic effects. According to Eric Raymond, the pastor out of Boston, he says that legalism is a system that thrives on personal performance, personal supremacy, and sadly, the trampling of others. It relentlessly squashes grace, mercy, and humility. In it, the sheep are hurt, the gospel is veiled, Christ is marginalized, and we are exalted. Church, legalism and love cannot coexist. Legalism and love cannot coexist. This is what Paul is getting at when he addresses the Galatians. In chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, this is what he says. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. If our prevailing spirit is one of legalism, we will devour each other. What Ephesus needs to understand, and what we need to understand, is that not all doctrines are at the heart of the gospel. Not all errors or things that we can disagree with are heresy. Not all disagreements are worth fighting about. But one commentator writes that many of the churches most firmly committed to the truth of the gospel are also the churches that have drawn boundaries too tightly on secondary issues. So I'm going to ask you a very personal question. Have you drawn boundaries too tightly around secondary issues? Have some of us drawn too tight boundaries around preferential issues that are not worth fighting about. I'm not saying we can't disagree. I'm not saying I don't want your opinions. All I am saying is that we need to overlook some of our differences in love, the ones that are not primary. Not all issues need to be corrected. And even the ones that do must be done in love and grace. And so how does Ephesus get out of this rut? What is the remedy that Jesus provides? He tells them to do three things. He tells them to remember and to repent and to repeat. Remember where you have fallen from. Remember the type of love that you used to have for me and that you used to have for each other. See, as a married couple slips into the mundane routine of life, it's easy for them to take each other for granted. It's easy for the rigidness of life to dampen the passion that they once had for each other. And when this happens, a marriage is in danger. Because in order to regain that sense of passion or regain that sense of excitement, you, you begin seeking it from another source. This is how addictions and affairs start. It begins when you forget your first love, and then you try and replace it with something uh, that's fabricated and fake. The same thing can happen in our relationship with God and with each other as believers. And when that happens for the church in Ephesus, what does Jesus tell them to do? Does he tell them to go find another love? 
Does he tell them to just try a little bit harder? No, he tells them to remember why they fell in love with him to begin with. Remember my amazing grace. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed? Do, Do you remember what that was like? Do you remember what it was like when you realized that you were a great sinner and you have a great Savior? Do you remember the priceless moment when your blind eyes were opened and the first face that you gazed upon was the sweet face of Jesus Christ? I'm not much of a sappy romantic, but I absolutely love going to weddings. Because as I witness a couple embark on a new journey together, I tend to replay my own wedding day in my mind. As the bride walks down the aisle, I remember what it was like the first time I saw Sarah, my bride, in her wedding dress. As the bride and groom uh, exchange uh, rings, I remember what it was like to hold the warm hands of Sarah in my hands. As the bride and groom exchange wedding vows, I remember that I made a commitment to my wife to be hers and her be mine till kingdom come. And as I remember all these things, it is accompanied with a flood of emotion and stirs in my heart a desire to love Sarah with the same kind of love on our wedding day. In Ephesians 5, Paul actually likens the sacrificial love of a husband and a wife uh, that they have for each other to that of the love that Christ has for the church. And Jesus is now calling on the church to remember that first love. I think packed in here, there's an implication where Jesus is saying, I don't want you just to remember your first love that you had for me and others. I also want you to remember my first love for you. That you love because I loved you first. Remember that kind of love. And as you remember what your love for Christ and what others was like and what his love for us was like, this prompts you to repentance. It's the second instruction in verse 5. Remember and then repent. To repent is merely to change our minds about the present attitude towards God and towards each other. Make a clean break with your uh, present manner of life. Go to God and confess that in my rigid legalism, I have not loved my brother or or sister in Christ, and I want to change. And I want to change, Lord. Would you show me what to do? And that actually brings us to the final remedy, and that is to repeat. Do the works that you did at first. Repeat the works that you did at first. Jesus is saying, remember your first love, repent of what you've become and then repeat the ways that you loved me and all the others when you first became a believer. Love in the way that you used to love. Restore that original fellowship that you had with God and others that was broken by sin and neglect. And then Jesus gives a very serious warning. The penalty if we don't. If you don't do this, there will be a serious penalty. Jesus tells the church in the second half of verse 5 that if you do not do this, I will come and remove your lampstand. We established earlier that the lampstand represents the church. So what Jesus is implying here 
is that if you do not have a love for each other and a love for me, you as a body of believers will cease to exist as a local church. The local church is meant to be a small expression of what the universal body of believers looks like in Christ. And as a local church ceases to love one another, they are no longer accurately representing what the body of Christ looks like. So do you see what Jesus is saying here? Do you see what he's telling the church of Ephesus and how serious this is? What Jesus is telling the churches in Ephesus is that I would sooner rather you not exist than have you tarnish my image of love. This is how serious not loving each other and loving God is. Jesus is saying that you are more valuable disbanded than continuing on giving me a bad name. Jesus is saying, I am a God of love, and I will not have you going on convincing others through your actions that I am anything different. This is some serious stuff. One commentator writes that some churches die from a lack of outreach. Some churches die from a lack of planning for the rising generation or a lack of courtesy to visitors. However, some churches simply kill themselves off by how they treat each other. This issue hits very close to home for me because I have personally witnessed firsthand the lampstand being removed from a church. When I uh, first came out of college, my, my first position as a youth pastor was in a small little church. And in about two years into my tenure there, this small little church decided to merge with another small little church in the next town over. It seemed like a great idea, and everybody was on board. But it did not take long for sin of men to poison the well. And about a year... After a year went by, there was a great division in the church and very little love for one another. At about the 14th, 14 uh, month mark of the merge, I was told by leadership that they were going to split the church and pretend this never happened. To, to, to watch the leadership split that church in what I think is an unbiblical manner, was one of the most painful experiences in my life. And within a year and a half, both of the churches that split from the one ceased to exist. Their lampstand removed. I hope and pray that FAC is not experiencing a slow death whose lampstand has already been removed because of our lack of love for each other in the past. We need to love each other or there's going to be serious consequences. We here at FAC have a lot of gifted people. We have a lot of wise people. We have a lot of generous people. But if we are not a loving people, if we have not love, Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that we're nothing, that we gain nothing, 
that were no more than a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If that's us, let us repent and cling to the promise. Cling to the promise. What's the promise? That actually is the second half of verse 7. And we'll spend our time briefly there and end our time here. Jesus makes the promise in verse 7 that to the one who conquers, he will grant them access to the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The true believers whose faith in, in Christ gives victory will eat of the tree of life. This is an image that goes all the way back to the garden, Genesis 1 and 2. A perfect world with perfect relationships. See, what I think Jesus is doing is offering us a token of hope. He's saying, while your relationships may be damaged right now, there is hope and here is my promise. You see, when God created the world, mankind was in a perfect loving relationship with God, in a perfect loving relationship with each other, and they enjoyed the fruit of everlasting life. But then our sin and our selfishness infected God's perfect order. What happened is we decided that instead of loving God, and instead of loving others, I'm going to love myself. The the primary adoration and devotion of my heart is going to be directed towards me. And it broke all of our relationships. However, and here's the promise, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life that they may enjoy the fruit from the tree of life. That is a promise. If you believe in Jesus Christ, not legalism, not any standards set before us by by man, not any man-made rules or man-made laws, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will experience eternal life. And with that eternal life, you will experience life as God intended it to be. Life with perfect, harmonious relationships, free from the stain of sin. We can hold on to that promise now and embrace each other in love. And while we're not perfect, we do everything we can to get there. And then we anticipate the day that it will be. Let's love one another in Christ. Let's guard the the truth, guard the pulpit, but do it in a loving manner, in a loving way, and how we carry about the business here at FAC. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, if you have taken away FAC's lampstand, would you please forgive us and give us another chance to get it right? Would you give us another chance to be a light in a very dark world, Lord? I pray that we can reflect the Ephesian church in their guardianship of your good word. But I pray, Father, that we would be a community of love and that we would carry about our business in that way in love and care and compassion. I thank you for the people uh, that sit in this room with me, Lord, in all of the ways that they have expressed loving kindness to myself and my family, Lord. And I ask that that would be reflective of the whole community here at First Alliance. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. We praise you for that, Father. And as we collect our offering, uh, let us look at this as an act of love.
an act of love towards people that need to hear the name of Jesus, that need to cling to that promise of eternal life. Lord, we praise you, and we ask you, Lord, that you would guide us. In your holy name I pray. Amen.